Good afternoon, everyone. I'm constitutional attorney Catherine Henry, and welcome to this week's episode of Restore Freedom Weekly. Uh, most of what we've done in, uh, well, since January, when we started doing it as a weekly series, uh, has been talking about uh, certain topics. For example, there was a House bill we talked about a couple months ago. Uh, there's been some court cases in circuit courts around Michigan, in uh, Court of Appeals, uh, the Michigan Supreme Court, and even the U.S. Supreme Court. We've talked about different topics, uh, such as an attorney's oath of office and uh, the supposed allegiance to uh, the British accredited registry, which is not a thing. If you think it is, go watch that video. Um, we've talked about, um, man, we've talked a lot about a lot of different stuff, but uh, every week it's been primarily me coming to you and explaining to you what's going on and then giving you my take on it. Uh, every now and then I might have pulled in Lori or my husband, Mike, but uh, generally they try to hide as far away from being on camera as humanly possible. But today is going to be a little bit different. As most of you know, this weekend is an important, uh, important weekend in uh, policy, in politics, and quite frankly, in government in the state of Michigan. In other states, if you're watching from another state, I encourage you uh, to keep watching because you can take some of what we're doing here and use these questions and topics as things to talk about in your own state as uh, this election year progresses. But today's topic is going to be uh, kind of an open-ended one, but uh, one that is geared towards a specific statewide office, that of State Attorney General. And most of you know that the current attorney general is Dana Nussel, and uh, she is uh, going to be challenged by one of three Republican primary candidates who will be decided shortly. I actually have the pleasure of knowing each of the three. Uh, Tom Leonard, I've actually known the longest for about seven years or so. Um, uh, Matt Diperno, I've known for couple of years and Ryan Berman I've also known for a couple of years. None of them I've been besties with by any stretch of the imagination, but getting to know them through my work to fight for freedom. So uh, it is without further ado that I want to introduce to you today a very special guest. This is uh, Attorney General candidate Ryan Berman. He is also currently, I believe, state rep for House District 39. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, don't know how I could remember that because I've <laughs> never even been there, I'm sure. But uh, of course, we have redistricting and everything. So who knows what number that would have been if you would have stayed running as a state rep. But uh, so today, everyone, uh, for those of you watching, and I'll hop over to the comments part. Uh, oh, let's see. Um, good morning, Joe, on YouTube, or good afternoon, I should say. Um, I will try to do my best to watch those as well as uh, usually Lori and Mike help me watch those too. But um, I'm going to run through a series of questions that, quite frankly, I came up with the specific questions today because of the important topics that we've been discussing. So this isn't a pre-scripted interview in the sense that Ryan doesn't know what we're specifically talking about. I didn't say, hey, I'm gonna uh, bring you on and I'm gonna ask you about this, this, and this. I just wanted to talk to him about 
generally important issues that would affect the state of Michigan and that certainly we need to hear what a candidate for the next Michigan AG would have to say about him. So uh, before we get started with all of that, though, uh, Ryan, could you share with people maybe even just um, 30 to 60 seconds about uh, who you are as a person and then maybe another 30 seconds or so about your career getting up to this point? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, like you said, I don't know how you guessed the, the 39th district. And <laughs> with redistricting, uh, I think it's going to be I'm in the new 20th district. The 39th is now on the west side of the state. So it's uh, Pauline, Rep. Pauline Wenzel is running in the new 39th district. Uh, I was I was actually at an event in Kalamazoo recently, and they said somebody, oh, running for the 39th. And I'm like, that's my district. I'm like, oh, yeah, wait, that's uh this whole redistricting thing is, uh, and that's a whole nother conversation, I think. I don't know if you've talked oh, about yeah. the, the scam of the independent commission and how gerrymandered these districts are now much worse than ever before. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know what? I've had the pleasure of uh, being a state representative now in my second term and knowing Catherine with uh, her work on freeing Michigan over Governor Whitmer's lockdowns. And we've had many conversations, hours long of tactics and techniques and going into court. And I applaud everything that she did uh, as an individual standing up for our rights and our freedoms and uh, her help in helping me with my caucus. And I was one of the lead fighters there to get them to file lawsuits to go against Governor Whitmer. Uh, when when this whole pandemic happened, in fact, you know, I, I've been fighting for for years now, you know, mainly, mainly against my own caucus, unfortunately. And one of the reasons I'm running for attorney general, you know, when Governor Whitmer locked down our state, did, did these unconstitutional mandates, where was our attorney general safeguarding our civil rights and liberties? Not only did she step aside and let Whitmer do whatever she wanted. But even after the Supreme Court ruled that what was going on was unconstitutional, she still continues to go after people who defied lockdown, rightfully decide, uh, defied these orders, going after them administratively. And it's absolutely wrong. And that's one of the reasons with my background and credentials experience that I, I had to step forward to take out a sitting incumbent attorney general, which is an uphill battle, but we need the right message, the right messenger. And I was the number one targeted district. Control of the Michigan House had to go through my district. So the Dems targeted me and it was the most expensive house race in our state's history. They spent close to $2 million, which is in any other realm, statewide money to unseat me. And a lot of it was because they said I'm too conservative for my moderate district, right? I kept, I stood up against Governor Whitmer and her nursing home policies. I sponsored a resolution opposing that, that passed the House, fighting against the Democrats. I sponsored the resolution against defunding the police. I was one of the first uh, representatives, Rep. Bo Lafave did articles of impeachment to have impeachment proceedings over to Governor Whitmer and her handling of the pandemic, and I signed on. And everybody in Lansing and leadership was like, Berman, you can't do this. You can't go against the governor. You're going to lose. She's polling too high in your district. 
And I said, well, I'm going to stand up for what's right and what where the chips fall. That's what happens. I'm here for a reason. Got me. God put me in this place for a reason. And I'm going to use my position and my voice to advocate for my constituents, but also advocate for the Constitution. And coming back in my district where I'm in this 50-50 type district, it went for for um, President Trump barely in 2016. It overwhelmingly went for Governor Whitmer and it just went for Joe Biden. You know, 40, 45 percent of people, they're voting Democrat no matter what. 40, 45 percent of people, though, are voting Republican. It's that five to 10 percent in the middle, the soft Democrats, soft Republicans, the independents that sway these elections. And that's what my district consists of. And she was polling great. They did actually. And, and it was really, you know, amazing. And I would knock on Republicans doors even that were happy with how Whitmer was treating it because the media, the media propaganda had them afraid. Fear is a is a big tool, especially, you know, um, this motivating factor. And they try to manipulate. And that's what they frankly did in our elections, manip trying to manipulate the outcome through this propaganda. But, you know, I flipped the script, right? It's all about not what you say, it's how you say it, but it's all about messaging. And I said, whether you agree or disagree with Whitmer, that's not the issue. You know, she could have the, a lot of people say, oh, she's coming from a good place. She has these altruistic motives. I said, listen, she's not my mother. She's not your mother. We have a system in place, a constitution that has checks and balances, co-equal branches, power properly belonging to to one branch cannot be properly ex exercised by another. Whether you agree or disagree, that's not the issue. Is it up to her? Is it up to one person to make these decisions? We left England in, 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 in English rule in a monarchy because of that. And that message resonated. And thankfully, and with a lot of hard work and the right message, I won. And I'm in this position now in my second term. And uh, yeah, I mean, I remember talking with you, Catherine, uh, over the phone and, and the leadership was going to extend Gretchen's powers on April 30th up to the last minute. And I, there was a, a handful of us, a handful of representatives that were constantly fighting uh, with some backlash against that. And I said, it's not going to be an easy vote. I'm going to go and put all of you on blast and I'm going to make it a big deal. And ended up getting in fight with the leadership at the time. And, and what Lee Chatfield said in these meetings, who was the Speaker of the House at the time, is, well, if we don't extend her powers, if we don't give her that authority to extend her powers, she's going to do it anyways, unilaterally, and it's going to make us look weak. I said, no, no, Lee. What's going to make us look weak if we go is if we go along with it? Just if you think, because you think you're going to lose the fight, you think she's going to do it anyways, it's kind of like the, the argument if a bully is going to come and take your lunch money every day and you know they're going to do it and you just don't put up a fight and hand it to them. That's not the way I was raised. That's not the way Americans are. You put up a fight. You punch that bully in the face. And if you end up losing, you make it hard. You make it difficult for them to do that. But at the end of the day, I was confident that if the Supreme Court did its jobs and looked at the Constitution, Constitution and ruled the way that the law, what the law says, and not politically, unfortunately, politics gets swayed and enveloped in everything, that we would win. We lost at the circuit court level. We lost at the Court of Appeals. Thankfully, and, and it was on my birthday, actually, got a good birthday present 
when the Supreme Court announced that that ruling that vindicating my position all along a month before the election that, hey, what she's doing is, in fact, unconstitutional and wrong. So before we get too far, I had wanted to kind of let people know about uh, who you are as a person and not just your your role that way. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you've been married for quite some time. And I believe your wife's birthday was in the last week or so. Yeah, a couple of days ago during this this time. So yeah, I uh, met met my wife up in Michigan State, did Michigan State undergrad, Wayne State for law school. She uh, met her there, but she happens to be from the this same town growing up in. And uh, now I know you're you're in Florida, and my family. I have a lot of family in Florida, and uh, her parents actually have a place like a few miles away from my dad in Florida. So oh, that's cool. like, you know, hey, this is uh, serendipitous, but it's it's worked out and we've been dating for, well, married now for 16 years, dating for five before that. So we're going on our 20, 22 years together. And, and you have two kids? Yeah, two uh, beautiful daughters and uh, they're now uh, 14 and 13 ninth eighth and ninth grade so they're uh freshmen in high school i feel really old and uh, oh, so old wait a minute now just to be clear of my four kids i have emma who's eight but i have an 18 year old an almost 19 year old and a 20 year old so if you're old then <laughs> i don't want to know what that makes me so yeah, although yeah. <laughs> we'll say it's my husband who's the old man everybody should know that's true i'm yeah. i'm yeah, you know what? It's it's one of those things that I grew up. I have an older brother, and uh, so, you know, and my my father was. They were all boys. The family, my mom's side, there was five boys, two girls. You know, it was just more boys around, kind of thing. Um, and all the grandkids, all my cousins were were boys, and then until later in life. Um, but I I had a daughter, and I'm like, oh, how am I going to deal with a yeah, daughter? What like, I, what am I going to do? Like, I'm a I'm a wrestler. I'm a fighter. I'm into mixed martial arts. I'm a I'm a gun guy. That's actually what brought me in to the Republican. Girls do party. guns too, though. Yeah. Well, that's what I found out. Right. So <laughs> it's like I'm the I'm the gun guy. Second Amendment shooting and and people said it's like, hey, your daughters are just the greatest thing. They're they're easier than boys, but just wait until they're in middle school. You know, and uh, the my daughters were easy. They were great. And now they were, they're in middle school and they're at the point where everybody warned me about is like, wait, it's until just school. starting. Oh, you just wait. Yeah. And now you're I, understand. I do. I understand why people say that. And I'm saying that to my friends who are having babies. Oh, daughters are the best. Just wait until middle school though. <laughs> Enjoy yep. it now. Enjoy it while it lasts. But no, my daughters are just. Oh, awesome. I'm sorry. I have to comment. There's somebody so rudely um, making a comment here that uh, he thinks he has a kid who's almost 40. Uh, dad, I'm not almost 40. Thank you. Almost 40 would be like two years from now. I would be almost 40, but you better take that comment back. I'm just saying, okay, sorry, Ryan. That was extremely important. I had to make a comment oh, about that. Definitely understand that. <laughs> now for my dad, he has the saving grace of, uh, my baby sister on, let's see, Sunday, Sunday will turn, um, 23. So, um, yeah. Whereas my husband's uh, oldest sibling, I believe, is 51. 
So yeah, we have, you know, that's why I say he, he's the old guy. I'm, I'm the young one, but, uh, anyway, um, good. I wanted to at least tell people who you are, uh, at least to some degree as a person, because that's important. You know, we often look at candidates, especially statewide races and we're like, Oh, you know, that's just a politician. That's just a, a lawyer. That's just whatever. And we forget to look at who they are as people because who they are as people helps uh, form who they are going to be in that particular role should they win the race. So, Absolutely. for example, Steve Rep, uh, St State Rep Steve Johnson, who is um, in the uh, oh door town. Uh, anyway, he's in, you know, the Kent Allegan area. Um, he and I were running in neighboring districts back initially in 2015, 2016, and I met him then. And he, um, you know, he's just a really young guy and he'd never been married. And he doesn't have kids. And I assume he still doesn't, but he didn't back then for sure. Um, you know, fresh out of, you know, military and college. And it was like, wow, the one biggest complaint I heard when, because he and I were very similar ideologically, the mm -hmm. one biggest complaint I heard when he and I would be at the same type of events was, well, he doesn't have enough life experience to do a good job. So uh, to the people that hold that kind of viewpoint, I wanted to let them know, yes, you are old enough and uh, you do have some life experience being uh, married for so long and raising teenagers. Uh, you're definitely, if you can raise teenage girls, two teenage girls in this era, you could probably do just about anything. Um, so anyway, so uh, at least we got that in there. Um, and I guess one thing I, I wanted to say at the beginning, <clears throat> but I kind of forgot to do that is there's a couple of reasons why I thought it would be important to do this. And let me be clear to the audience that um, I did initially make this offer to all three AG candidates. So Tom and Matt as well, a couple months ago. And uh, it, you know, I, I'm not here to say anything bad about individuals, but uh, let me just say there's a reason why we're focusing all the time in this episode on Ryan. Um, and, you know, at some point I was thinking about doing the same thing for the governor's race and the secretary of state race. Uh, I won't have time to do that, obviously, before um, the convention, uh, at least for a full episode, but we may still uh, try to reach out to Ryan Kelly and and maybe some others who would be interested and and have some of these discussions as well. But especially with the attorney general position, I feel like, um, not feel, there is a duty that I have as a Michigan licensed attorney. And let me explain that in two simple concepts. One is, uh, we as attorneys in Michigan have a duty to protect and inform the public. That's actually written into state law, um, MCL 600.901. In the compiler's note, it is citing actually a Michigan Supreme Court case from a very fabulous year, 1983, uh, the Falk v. State Bar case. But uh, it's important. We as attorneys have a duty to protect and inform the public, which is what I've been fighting for well, for years. But very much so and solely uh, for my career for the last two years. But also uh, Michigan Rules of Professional Conduct, which I've talked to you guys about before, but Michigan Rules of Professional Conduct 8.2, if you look at that and then you look at the comment to that, um, there's something I wanted to point out to you. Um, that tells us that um, assessments 
by lawyers, so, you know, my opinion as a lawyer, are relied on in evaluating the professional and personal fitness of persons being considered for election or appointment to judicial office and to public legal offices, such as attorney general, prosecuting attorney, and public defender. So essentially, uh, a lawyer's assessment of the candidates is important, and that goes hand in hand with a lawyer's duty to protect and inform the public. So that's why we're sitting here having this important discussion today about uh, the race of attorney general in the state of Michigan, and specifically having that conversation with one of those three uh, AG candidates. Um, so with that being said, um, man, there's so much to talk about and so little time. So, uh, I realize that there's going to be some nuances or there's going to be a lot of detail that you could offer on some things. So just keep in mind that I do have a ton of specific questions that I kind of wanted to at least touch on. Uh, so if you can just try to keep that in mind when you're answering, uh, some questions, but Okay, so, well, let me, very quickly, you've been a prosecutor before, is that right? Yeah, so um, I see there's a question, where am I from? I grew up, I'm from uh, West Bloomfield is where I grew up. I live in Commerce Township. I represent the, the like they said, the 39th district, which is all of Commerce Township, uh, Wolverine Lake, Wixom, Northern, uh, and Western West Bloomfield. And kind of with, with my background, uh, Michigan State, Wayne State. When I was at Michigan State, I did an internship with the state police out of the Brighton Post. I can get into a lot of stories there, but I learned about auxiliary and reserve police services. Um, I ended up going to the Oakland Police Academy, the Reserve Academy, during my first semester of law school. So I did both at the same time. Graduated there, you know, with, with honors and was a reserve sheriff's deputy throughout law school and afterwards. Uh, I'm now a, currently a reserve police officer. Uh, I did a stint as a special prosecutor. So I am the only candidate that has done trials in the courtroom as a prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney and uh, had my own practice dealing with uh, both criminal law and civil litigation. A lot of uh, general business disputes representing small businesses as their general counsel, individuals, families, you name it. Anything specialty, I referred out. Um, but I have uh, the only candidate with that broad-based legal experience, licensed for 17 years, uh, both now in the private sector, in the public sector as a second-term state representative. And just for comparison, I am not a hundred percent certain on this, but I'm fairly certain uh, to those of you watching. Uh, the other two candidates, Tom Leonard, I believe, uh, only has the experience in criminal cases on the prosecution side, and uh, Attorney Matt DiPerno, I believe, has more of the criminal defense experience and not prosecution. Um, as far as you know, Ryan, is that right? That, that's right. Uh, with, with Tom Laddern, and, and it's my understanding, Matt DiPerno concentrated on tax law and then civil litigation. Um, at one of the debates, he said he has handled a criminal matter, but I don't know how you know far extent that is, whether it's just one case. I mean, that okay. was it. But, but I think, yes. if anything, it's just criminal defense. He doesn't have uh, right. prosecution. Yeah, he doesn't have any prosecution. Yeah, so it's one or one or the other. How extensive those are, nobody's as extensive as uh, as my experience. Okay. 
So um, with that being said, uh, this might be a pretty easy question for you, but as quickly as possible, just in an overview kind of format, what would you say are some of the key constitutionally protected rights, either in the U.S. or Michigan constitutions for criminal matters, for, for criminal defendants? Well, the, the number one and the number one issue that, well, what, what most people hear about is your right to remain silent. But that actually is not that big uh, of, of issues and constitutional rights in criminal matters. It's the Fourth Amendment, search and seizure um, and, and your arrest, uh, which is also under the Fourth Amendment, is actually seizing your person. So the Fourth Amendment, and I think, has the vast amount of case law and controversy and opinion surrounding it in the criminal realm. And then you go into, and that's before you even get into the courtroom. The majority of this is is actually getting into the courtroom, but that's what, you know, we're, we're maybe we'll talk about the, the Grand Rapids shooting. That is all analyzed under a, a Fourth Amendment principles. Once you get into a courtroom, once you are under arrest, once they are searching, whether then they, they fill out warrants under the Fourth Amendment to go gather, investigate, investigate a, a suspect who becomes a defendant, then you're looking at, again, Fourth Amendment principles, but then you have your Fifth Amendment rights to not incriminate yourself. We'll go into those of where your your phone, where if you have a passcode on your phone, they cannot force you to give your physical passcode, but they can force you to put it at your face to unlock your phone with your face. And those are different different principles when analyzed under their constitution. And you go into your Sixth Amendment rights for uh, counsel and having an attorney present at different stages of the proceedings. So it's really four, five, six. So would you also say there's that underlying notion of uh, uh, the right to be treated equally, have that equal protection of the law like we'd see in civil criminal alike? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then again, those are going to be other arguments and depending on whether it's, you know, at a scene or afterwards, equal protection, due process, your 14th Amendment, you know. Uh, so it just depends on what the arguments are there, what the, the facts, the, the totality of the circumstances. So and for those of you watching, um, he talked about the Sixth Amendment uh, in Michigan. It's also uh, those rights for specific to criminal defendants are in Article One, Section 20. Uh, it's the right to a speedy and public trial, which doesn't happen in Allegan County, uh, the right to be informed of the nature of the accusation, the right to be confronted with the witnesses against you. Uh, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in your behavior. In other words, in, uh, to force, like if there's some third party, you know, uh, an employee of a, of a gas station or something um, who, you know, witnessed something that would help you in your case, but they don't want to cooperate. They don't want to come to court and tell what happened. You can have the court subpoena them or, you know, um, an attorney subpoena them to come and testify even if they don't want to. Um, and of course, the right to assistance of counsel for your defense. Um, so on the punishment side, I'm assuming uh, you would agree that uh, we have, if somebody does have that due process and they are found guilty as a matter of law, then uh, they are um, protected from excessive, you know, well, bail would be at the beginning of a case, but excessive fines or mm -hmm. uh, cruel and unusual punishments. 
Um, never heard an attorney that argued that didn't, uh, that wasn't protected in the constitution. Um, one thing that people often forget about would be, um, which we're seeing a lot with these, um, uh, executive orders and, and MDHHS emergency orders, how things were changing and, and essentially at times being retroactive, uh, that there is a, a right in the U.S. and Michigan constitutions to be free from a bill of attainder, uh, which, which is essentially an act which can end up imposing a death sentence without a trial. Um, and uh, we saw that there were some, well, you know, things in nursing homes and things of that nature uh, where there's uh, treatments being denied, where physicians were saying, hey, look, uh, hydroxychloroquine would be appropriate here or some other, um, you know, treatment. But uh, the AG's office or the governor's office was strong arming uh, pharmacies and doctors and saying, no, you can't have. In fact, state rep, um, oh, my gosh, I totally lost her name. I can picture what she looks like from Detroit. Um a Democrat. What would you say? I was like, which one? Karen Whitsett? Yes, Karen Whitsett. Uh, that she ended up having some leaders on both the Democrat and Republican side uh, as, you know, state legislators writing letters, basically begging pharmacies and providers to go ahead and give her uh, the treatments that then President mm -hmm. Donald Trump was saying would be most helpful. And if it wasn't for her ability to get those, she probably wouldn't be with us today. I believe it was her and her husband that were gravely ill mm -hmm. with COVID. So um, anyway, uh, and she's a Democrat. She's not a Republican for those of you watching and wondering about that. It's uh, it's not a party issue. But anyway, so some of those things uh, are, you know, we, we need to be aware of what all of our rights are when we're out there enforcing the law, either just as attorneys, part of the judicial system or police officers or prosecuting attorneys or attorney general. Mm -hmm. Um so, so yeah, so I, yeah, I mean, so that's a great point and kind of the story about like who I am. My father uh, is an attorney. He practiced for a couple of years and then went into uh, business, into real estate, became an investor, uh, commercial uh, properties and was an entrepreneur back when nobody knew what an entrepreneur was. And he told I have an older brother. Like I said, he, he told both of us, you're going to law school. That's it. So I had no choice. I knew I was going to law school ever since I was in elementary school. But he said, whatever you want to do in life, I will support you. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? You just said I have to go to law school. He's that, like, and you could be a barber or. Right, exactly. So we, that law degree is that base. If you want to go into business, you know all your rights. If somebody threatens to sue you, you know whether it's legitimate or not. You don't have to be on the phone all day with your attorney. Can I do this? Can I do that? If you want to go into uh, politics, right? You have to know the law to be able to make the law and change the law. I've always been interested in law enforcement. You have to know the law to enforce the law. Again, it gives you that level of empowerment where, you know, somebody threatens, oh, you did this. No, I, I did it properly. And working on both sides of the law, like I have, wearing the different hats as a police officer and a defense attorney, that being a defense attorney makes you a better police officer to follow the rules and know what's going on to take enforce the law better and being a, a police officer on the front lines there you know it makes you a better defense attorney with all the same trainings and everything to make sure that the prosecutor and the police officers followed the law and did their job it's not incompatible a lot of people say how can you do one and the other because i'm all about justice seeking justice and the right thing yeah 
Well, and so kind of on that point and what the duties of uh, a prosecutor are, today's true or false question, I, I do that every Tuesday, we have a Tuesday true or false, uh, is, um, well, Ryan, you could tell us, is it true or is it false? A prosecutor has the responsibility of a minister of justice and not simply that of an advocate. The responsibility carries with it specific obligations to ensure a defendant is accorded procedural justice and that guilt is only decided upon the basis of sufficient evidence. Is uh, is that, uh, and, and let me- That's true in my eyes. It's true in how it's supposed to be. Okay. So uh, the answers being asked or, or proposed would be true regardless of whether a defendant has his or her own attorney. The prosecutor has a duty to ensure the defendant is accorded procedural justice or false. A prosecutor owes no duty to the defendant as it is just the defense attorney who is supposed to protect the defendant's interests. And you're saying the answer is true regardless if they have an attorney. It's the prosecutor's job. Yes. Uh, yeah, so for those of you watching at home or, or on your lunch break, uh, Michigan Rule of Professional Conduct uh, for Attorneys, 3.8. If you look at the comment, I literally pulled that word for word uh, for the question there. And uh, it's important because that entire rule, you guys should look at that, that entire rule is specifically talking about uh, the special duties of the prosecuting attorneys. Um also, you know, you mentioned police. In fact, I, there's one thing that you mentioned that I just, I absolutely loved and it seems common sense, but uh, man, do people not follow it? Uh, and that is that the police, if you're going to enforce the law, if you're going to be a law enforcement officer, that you have to know what the law is in order to enforce it. And yeah, that's common sense. Um, a lot of police, uh, sheriffs, deputies, whatever, a lot of law enforcement officers throughout my career, because I have served as a public defender in two different states, as a lawyer guardian ad litem, I've obviously been in the freedom fight, I've been in the, uh, you know, uh, hallway of the state legislature when uh, Chatfield decided to lock us out on April 30th from that session of legislature, etc., and so speaking and being face to face with a lot of law enforcement officers, the one most common response I hear is, well, I'm not an attorney. You can argue that in court. Uh, and it's kind of hard to, to think of, I mean, okay, great. You think you want to stay in your own lane, but if you're the law enforcement officer, you have to know what the law is in order to enforce it. Um, but more specifically, as it applies to the AG race or any prosecutor, um, I found it interesting uh, that rule, Michigan Rule of Professional Conduct 5.3, it talks about a lawyer's responsibility for non-lawyer assistance. And, you know, the people that work for you as an investigator or as clerical staff or something of that nature. But then the comment to that rule uh, specifically uh, deals with um, the, um, I want to make sure I get the right one here. The comment is specifically applying that in a, in a prosecutor situation. So that says, uh, as does rule 3.8, which we talked about a minute ago, this rule may in certain situations impose on a prosecutor an obligation to make reasonable efforts to ensure that a defendant's rights are protected. In other words, the prosecutor has to actively take steps to protect a defendant's rights 
Of course, not all of the individuals who might encroach upon those rights are under the control of the prosecutor, but where this rule applies, the prosecutor must take reasonable and appropriate steps to ensure that the defendant's rights are protected. And quite honestly, even though you have a lot of prosecutors that intend to do well, or they're nice people, or they're really intelligent, unfortunately, I have very rarely seen any prosecuting attorney actually follow through on this and take proactive steps to ensure that a defendant's rights are being protected. Um, you know, they might just make sure that they're not intentionally violating the rights of the defendant, but they're not taking that proactive step. So um, anyway, I think that's uh, that's a very important concept that, you know, we shouldn't uh, shouldn't gloss over. But you um, you mentioned the governor's executive orders, our conversations about that, um, and the the concept of the separation of powers, how the governor was um, putting these orders into place and that it was, she's one person uh, that, um, you know, there's the legislature that does, you know, uh, other things. Of course, the Michigan Supreme Court didn't touch the issue of whether the legislature would be allowed to issue you know, rules or laws uh, to, to do some of those very things that she was doing through executive order. Uh, but they simply said that her executive orders violated one state law when they went past April 30th. And the other law she was relying on was unconstitutional. Again, they ignored the, the argument as all the arguments as to why it was unconstitutional, but they merely stated, well, it is unconstitutional because it separates um, because of the separation of powers. Um, in the back and forth, the uh, later motions filed by the governor and um, you know statements that were made by then acting director Robert Gordon of MDHHS, uh, as well as Governor Whitmer herself, especially throughout that weekend in talking about you know using the public health code and uh, that the Supreme Court was doing the public a huge disservice, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, let me first ask you, what is your, um, now that they've been uh, using the public health code, MCL 333.2253, and then in local situations, MCL 333.2453, and you have that iron pig case that's uh, bouncing between the Court of Appeals and the Michigan Supreme Court, um, where the Michigan Attorney General's office is arguing that the uh, Supreme Court got it wrong the first time and that the executive branch does have the ability to issue these orders. Uh, we already heard your stance on the separation of powers issue. First, let me ask you, uh, it's talked about in the opinion from October 2nd, 2020. Uh, there's a lot of discussion on the separation of powers doctrine. Uh, is it a doctrine in Michigan? Well, I think it's clear it, it's I, I don't know, if, I guess, the definition of doctrine, but it's clear in our in our Constitution. It's actually spelled out pretty clearly. So I think typically when you say doctrine, I guess it, it depends on in that meeting. A lot of the doctrines are what the court comes up with, where maybe it's some type of judicial activism or or ways to interpret certain uh, certain language and they call it a doctrine because of what a court came up with that's what like that doctrine 
um, versus the actual language of the Constitution. Right. The language, it's literally yes. in the language, and the language is clear. Okay. And it wasn't, I guess maybe it could be a trick question, but that's exactly what I was getting at is that mm -hmm. the court referred to it as a doctrine. They talk about cases uh, from the U.S. Supreme Court uh, where there's the doctrine of the separation of church. Uh, church, church and state—that's mm -hmm. another doctrine. Mm -hmm. uh, so, where it's the separation of powers, but mm -hmm. uh, what they failed to recognize with the, was the plain language of the Michigan State Constitution. It's no doctrine. It's right. literally the words "separation of powers" are written into Article Three, Section Two, of the state constitution. But uh, so, what is your stance then on um, whether it's through the public health code, whether it's through? Um, the remaining um, executive order uh, statute, which would be um, the 1976 Emergency Management Act, mm -hmm. um, either of those, they're, they're both giving the power of the executive branch to issue orders to mm -hmm. regulate people. Uh, regulate. Also, their yeah, I mean, I, th I think you, what you're getting at is whether, you know, again, they are saying it was an unconstitutional delegation of powers. And that's what we see with this, our federal government, how Congress gives these agencies, gives up their, their ability to regulate and gives it to bureaucrats like the ATF and things like that. And, and that's how the federal government has run amok. But I think your, your underlying question is, again, it's how the Supreme Court rules where they ruled on that delegation and whether I think what you're getting at is that the legislature has the authority to pass laws like that themselves, because I think those laws and those rules in themselves, not whether she had the power to do it was ruled unconstitutional, but whether those orders themselves would then be unconstitutional against our constitution. So basically uh, to maybe clear up the question. So back then on April 30th, the house and Senate actually passed house bill, Senate Bill 858, which codified, uh, I want to say 32, it was over half of the governor's then existing executive orders. So it, it literally just took her orders, 32 right. of them, and made them law. And it, they put it on her desk for her to sign it. And she didn't. And she said it was unconstitutional for a variety of reasons. Ironically, um, well, I'll get to that in a yes. minute. But uh, so... One of the things I'm wondering is if if that if she had signed that into law or if there had been a supermajority that overrode her veto, mm -hmm. um, is a bill like Senate Bill 858, where um, the, it's the legislature putting into law, you know, a mask mm -hmm. mandate or a social distancing mandate or. Um, a, I'll, I'll just stop you there. It's unconstitutional. So that's against our First Amendment rights of free expression, free speech. Okay. So um, any any law that is passed that doesn't pass constitutional muster, in my opinion, it's void. Okay. It has no force. So let me ask you this, because I asked, uh, well, I didn't ask. Matt DiPerno and I had this discussion mm -hmm. back in um, October, no, no, November, uh, November, December 2020, when uh, he was working on the Antrim County uh, um, audit case for the elections. And he had reached out to me and wanted to brainstorm some ways uh, to handle things. He said that the judge in the case was ordering him to uh, release the information from the audit to 
the Michigan Attorney General's office and the Secretary of State's office, who were not parties to the case, but also at the mm -hmm. same time was prohibiting him from releasing that same information to the public under a gag order. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, well, hey, I mean, I, that's obviously unconstitutional. They they can't order you to, to release information to non-parties like that in this context. And they certainly can't put the gag order on you and stop you from releasing that information to the public. And he said mm -hmm. to me, well, yeah, but you have to follow. This was a circuit court judge who did mm -hmm. this. And you have to follow a circuit court judge's order until a higher court, court of appeals or Supreme mm -hmm. Court, explains or declares that decision to be unconstitutional. What are your thoughts about that kind of concept? Or a judge orders you to do something, follow some statutes that you know are bad yeah. or whatever, mm -hmm. and you know that they're unconstitutional. What is uh, anyone's duty in terms of following that court order until the higher court declares that action unconstitutional? I mean, I think it, it depends on the circumstances surrounding it. But unfortunately, you know, he might have had the, the right, uh, I guess, angle with it. And again, I don't know the whole facts or what the order said there. That's why if a judge orders something, depending on the timing, you file a motion, you do an immediate appeal, you go to a different judge because judges do have a lot of authority. And I've seen it where they abuse that discretion. I'm sure you've seen it where these judges, they call it black robe syndrome, and they get that robe on. And especially at the district court level, which is the, the most amount of people that see the district court. District courts is where every single criminal case begins, but all misdemeanor cases, lower level traffic infractions are done all the way through. Any serious cases start in the district court and then they go to the circuit court. And any type of civil case, up to $25,000 threshold, small claims, anything up to 25, uh, landlord-tenant disputes, that's all at the district court level. And at the district court, they know that the litigants there, typically the vast bulk of them, don't have the money or the resources to appeal those judges' orders. They'll sit there and they'll know they got the law wrong, or they'll do it and say, Oh, if you don't like it, appeal me and know how our legal system is broken in a lot of regards and how long it can be in a delay. And that's why these cases, even on a fast track, take so long to go through the system and finally get years later through the Court of Appeals or to the Supreme Court. So, you know, I've worked actually, and we say some of this about going after judges, these rogue judge, rogue, if you will, but there's there's no mechanism right now. The, the Supreme Court administrative office that oversees the judicial branch and, and management. I try to get the reversal rates for a certain judge who I keep getting complaints about in Oakland County, and they don't even track that. They should be tracking these things because if a judge is constantly getting reversed or they're probably um, having a bad attitude on the bench, the judicial tenure commission it takes so long. It took this this Judge Brennan in Livingston County. I just gave a, uh, a talk. Somebody was asking about my experiences. And I said one of the worst experiences I had was in front of Judge Brennan in Livingston County. And she ordered me. Actually, at one point, I was sitting there with a client who was accused of a crime. And she was asking him questions during this pretrial 
trying to the, the apparently there was an allegation there was contact between the defendant and a victim or a witness and i tell me don't don't answer the question that's it's improper he has his fifth amendment rights she told me to shut up not to counsel my client and at one point re said leave my courtroom or i'm going to have you arrested what do you do in that situation you know it's illegal what she's doing I sure as hell wouldn't leave. In fact, um, I'll tell you what, that same thing essentially happened to me in my Allegan County case, I, uh, which is still ongoing, trial set for June 15th, 2022, sixth trial date that the judge has given us. Uh, no reason for changing the dates. But anyway, when I walked in in February, let's see, February of 2020, um, 2021, excuse me, um, uh, I had already made a... Uh, a um, ADA request to have it in person with no masks because I'm hard of hearing and I read lips, which is why when you're talking, I'm staring at your screen and seeing what you're saying instead of just keeping uh, my eye on the camera. Um, so uh, anyway, I had seen though that some judges were wearing masks and some were not. Uh, but anyway, it seemed that my order, you know, my request was approved by the judge. And yet when I got there, he's wearing a mask and the prosecuting attorney is wearing a mask. And uh, we also have a right to have the public be present in all of our hearings. And uh, there's a state law that says all hearings are open to the public, uh, let alone that due process issue. And I walked in the courtroom and uh, they said no one else was allowed in with me. They wouldn't let my husband in. They wouldn't let my father in. They wouldn't let the press in. They wouldn't let anybody in, which is illegal and unconstitutional. I came in, though. The, the deputies let uh, attorney Greg Todd come in with me and uh, as my assistance of counsel. And um, he came in. Before we even approached the table, before we were even on the record, the judge is questioning him about who he is, telling him he has to leave, even after he's identifying himself as an attorney who is there to provide assistance of counsel to me who had been brought up to speed on my motion to dismiss the judge ordered him out of the courtroom he wasn't even allowed to continue bringing my stuff up to the front table um that was i mean i i'm not mad at him because it was like he was so dumbfounded he, he said afterwards i never would have believed you if you would have told me about this afterwards what happened but he was so blown away and it was so ridiculous what happened. So many laws and constitutional provisions that were broken all in one foul swoop by this judge with the prosecuting attorney sitting there and allowing it to happen, even though, as we talked about earlier, they have that special duty to make sure that my rights are procedurally are kept intact throughout this whole process. Um he ended up leaving the courtroom and didn't put up much of a fight, probably because in that instinct, he was thinking, I don't want to harm her interests by making the fight bigger than it needs to be. Um, but quite frankly, in hindsight, um, had I been the attorney, I sure as hell wouldn't have left. And if the judge would have said, you're going to be in contempt of court, I would have said, for what? Representing my client? Though I was arrested because I was representing two clients that were there circulating a petition uh, violating no law, no constitutional provision whatsoever. So, and they knew that, I mean, there's no denying that they don't argue that they knew I was coming just to be an attorney for those mm -hmm. individuals. So I guess, yeah, I guess you could say 
uh, I've already taken the stance that as an attorney, you do what you need to do. In fact, I don't remember the specific um, court rules and, and whatnot off the top of my head right now, but um, there's several that I'll talk about as an attorney. We have that duty to protect and inform the public, but we also have a duty to be a part of that justice system. And um, when there is some sort of legal obligation that would otherwise be imposed, that we have a genuine argument for saying that it's not constitutional or it's not legal, um, we don't have the obligation to continue following that law or that rule. And, um, you know, of course, courts never talk about that, but it actually says it in there because if we were told we had to continue following unconstitutional laws, for example, and just wait for the court to sort it out, there'd be no point. You know, you you just well, yeah. I mean that's that's throughout this thing, and even as a, a representative, I would tell businesses, no, what she's doing, what Winmer is doing, it's unconstitutional. Go about your business. You have issues. If they stop you, I'll I'll take care of it. I will help you. I'm in your corner. I'll do whatever my office can do, and even you know, as a private attorney, I have friends that will help and and will defend you over these unconstitutional mandates and orders. So in fact, just, in fact, some of the original, uh, some of her original mandates, knowing that she can't control a co-equal branch, said these orders don't apply to you know the legislature. So I uh, deputized a lot of people. You're my assistant state representative. Go out and do uh, stuff in the community under my under my orders, and wrote letters saying you're going to do this and uh, get get um, research for me on what's going on out there and blah, 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 having that extra level of protection for people to go about their business. Right. Well, and so I guess uh, whether it's the, the legislature that makes a bad law that's unconstitutional or a governor who exceeds her authority and makes uh, executive orders uh, that violate the Constitution or uh, a judge who makes an order that is clearly illegal or unconstitutional, um, my argument has always been, we don't have the obligation to follow that. Now, if it's a court decision and, uh, you know, there's something there, we might have to, you know, we might have the obligation to simultaneously fight it in court mm -hmm. and, um, you know, file appeals or follow whatever, you know, process there would be to fighting it that way. But, um, we absolutely don't have to, uh, as Marbury versus Madison told right. us, I mean, you know, any unconstitutional act of the government, you know, it can't create an office. It can't create an obligation. It can't create a duty on behalf of someone. So it's void right from the very beginning. Well, and, and it also depends on who it is, who's the order directing, because I've counseled the legislature. We're a co-equal branch. We can have the Supreme Court or, you know, a court say one thing. We can totally disregard it if we want to. We're equal. It's just so, like in a, in a business, right? Or even in a, you know, as a thing, they're not our sergeant. They're at the same level that the patrol level. They're not the captain. They don't tell you what to do. Right. You can ultimately ignore it. And that's what our political process is for. That's even, you know, getting into some, some other matters, but um, yeah, I, I'm not going to, go off on, on a tangent there, but it's, it's, uh, you know, one of these principles of, 
uh, the, the separation of powers for a reason. And that's why at the end of the day, the one thing that, that is the, that the legislature has is the power of the purse strings, the power of the money. And if you don't like what another branch is doing, you withhold those funds. And that's what I said is like, why are you giving the entire budget, giving Whitmer everything she wants when we're in battles with her, give her nothing and let her try to enforce her unconstitutional orders with no money. Give her exactly. nothing. And they wouldn't do it. I had a vote against the budget. Even again, I said, listen, anybody with, a, again, a child, you don't give your kid an allowance of, of their yearly, all year up front and say, behave, do your chores. And I'm going to- Especially like, when they have a track record of not behaving. Exactly. That's what you have is, all right. I said, let's do monthly budgets. You want me to vote for a budget? I'll do a monthly budget to keep her in line. Talking about vaccine mandates, we said putting it in the budget to say you can't have these at our universities, you can't have them anywhere, these health departments. And I said, all right, monthly budgets, make sure this stuff gets implemented. The House initially passed quarterly budgets. All right, cool. That's a thing in the step direction, step in the right direction. The Senate took it out. It was passed without those provisions. I voted no. One of only a handful of reps that voted no. Steve Johnson, Steve Cara, Riley. And this is a Republican-controlled legislature, ladies and gentlemen. Republican-controlled legislature. I'm one of only a handful of representatives standing up to when they're putting more fees, extending sunsets, doing things that against the people, against the constituents, against their, frankly, a lot of the principles that they ran in their primaries and ran on, and they're doing the opposite. Right. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm one of, you know, 55 Republican members. That's why I'm running for attorney general to be the one of the one to use the power for the people to ensure our civil rights and liberties are upheld and to do the right thing, regardless of party. But so, they, they well, ended up passing that budget. And guess what Whitmer did? Said, oh, you guys in the health departments ignore that those provisions, that boilerplate. I, I believe it's unconstitutional. Ignore it. And a lot of them did. And then the leaders, oh, how can she do this? She stabbed us in the bag. I, I, we can't trust her. I'm like, uh, hello, told you so. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Well, so let me ask you on the issue of these orders. Um, most likely the Iron Pig case is going to be still in court, whether it's the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court of Michigan, uh, where they're battling out MCL 333.2253 and whether the um, MDHHS can issue these EOs that the governor's EOs were originally mm -hmm. doing. So if that case is still going and you win the AG spot, what would you do about this case? It's it's the AG's office that's- um, I, I would withdraw the case. I'd withdraw the case. The circuit judge got it totally right, especially according to the, the Supreme Court opinion. Um, I, I downloaded the opinion. I think I got, got a few pages in and then got distracted, had to go to something else. It could still be on my computer and one of the hundreds of tabs in the in the background. But no, absolutely. I think the, the law in the case was settled. It's clear and it vindicated my position all along with the Supreme Court ruled on the Governor Whitmer's orders. And that's the exact thing that these orders are based upon. Um, okay. It's pretty clear cut. Again, day one. There's, it's saying uh, a lot of the times there's a question, what are you going to do? What are your priorities? And 
you know, one of those priorities isn't, you know, a specific case. It isn't a specific thing at all. It's a general theme of we have somebody in the attorney general's office that has been misusing, weaponizing, and using it for policy, for her far left extreme policy. Um, and we need to correct that course. We need to get a new captain on the ship to right the path. And there's something like, what, 40,000 cases against the state. You're not just the top law enforcement officer, the top prosecutor. You're the attorney for all the state departments and representing them in lawsuits. What cases are going on in this state that, you know, don't have the publicity that is being unjust? Somebody's treated unfairly. If they're still going after Carl the Barber's license or Merlina's, you know, business, whatever it is, we need to look at the whole picture, what's going on and saying, nope, this is unfair, remove this. This is a political prosecution, remove this. Getting up to date on these things. I already know, line five, she kept losing in court on the construction of the new line five, and she's continuing going after trying to shut down our current line five. She ran on this. This is policy. This is not what the attorney general is supposed to be doing, is creating policy. That's up to the legislature. I will remove that from day one, withdraw from that case. Looking at some of these other cases, her amicus briefs on, on all types of issues around the country, looking, hey, is this going to benefit Michiganders? Does this benefit everybody? Or is this position just benefiting her and her political cronies? That's what I'm going to do. And you want somebody with integrity and know what he's doing to look at all those cases and, and I'm not going to be a shill, and anybody can tell you, for the Republican side. You're not just going to get some Republican. I think the, the prosecutors, sheriffs, even the attorney general really should be nonpartisan when you're enforcing the law. There's certain things you can do with di discretion and shifting budgets and having, you know, shifting resources to, to target, whether it's violent crimes, human trafficking, consumer protection, um, I said I would have an election integrity unit on day one and have a couple assistant attorney generals and investigators housed within that unit to make sure, not just afterwards, but leading up to an election and on election day, people are following the law. That's what I did as a poll challenger and election day attorney for the Republican Party. But it doesn't have to be just, you know, a Republican or a Democrat thing. We need to be following the laws and our elections. So, so yeah. about the laws, now elections is an important topic, but um, recently uh, Governor Whitmer filed a case in Oakland uh, Circuit Court asking the court to uh, declare that women have the right to an abortion under the Michigan Constitution and asking the court to enjoin or stop uh, the 13 prosecutors that have abortion clinics in their counties from prosecuting cases under MCL 750.14, which is the criminal abortion statute. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, obviously, you know, her argument is that um, even though there's this debate right now and, and has been for quite some time in the U.S. Supreme Court about uh, whether a woman has the right to an abortion under the U.S. Constitution, uh, Whitmer is arguing that it is an unequivocal fact that the Michigan Constitution contains a uh, a right to abortion for women. Um, I, I, I just I, I know you're you're very um, 
adept and you've read the constitution probably more times than I have, even though I give them out in my office and carry it in my car. Um, but I don't remember reading that in our Michigan constitution. Is that somewhere in there? Uh, the word abortion is, it's, is not, um, no, yeah, I, I do I recall it either. the word life is actually in there a few times. Um, in fact, you touched on it earlier. Uh, due process. We will not be deprived life, liberty, or property without due process of law, guaranteed in both constitutions. But that first one, life. Uh, and so, you know, they're trying to say, well, you know, it's, I don't even know how they, her brief, her, her complaint doesn't even talk about life. It's just saying uh, whether a child is viable in the womb or not. And that's all that really matters. Uh, her argument is that the whole anti-abortion statute is uh, in violation of the Equal Protection Clause because it was enacted to keep women in their domestic servitude roles. And so, therefore, it's unconstitutional, et cetera. But uh, I don't know what your thoughts are. My thoughts are it's the Constitution's pretty darn clear. We have a right to life. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say only when you can breathe on your own. I mean... If we say it's only when you can breathe on your own or when your organs function entirely sufficiently on their own and don't need any assistance uh, whatsoever, then what does that mean for people who are in the hospital? What does it mean for all the COVID patients that were on ventilators? What does it mean for you know the millions of people who receive medical care every single year? What, what does it mean for the Kevorkian case uh, with assisted suicide? You know, we're... Um, it's, is it okay to say that you, your life is only counted as a life if you can survive, uh, physically survive on your own without the assistance of anyone else is, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, you have, I, I think two different, like, like anything in these legal cases, different issues of, of how to rule what your positions are. And I think there's, you know, as a state representative, right, you have the Constitution, you can have statutes, as long as they're not against the Constitution. We also don't like judicial activism, reading in things, but we have a set of case law precedent. And that's what this whole Roe v. Wade, uh, this new case Hobbs, that is whether that's going to overturn that. I think for me, it's, again, wearing two different hats. I have two different viewpoints on this as an attorney general, a potential attorney general candidate, being the attorney for the state um, versus a state representative or as an individual setting policy. Uh, looking at it from that lens from the attorney general, not, not Governor Whitmer's position, but Dana Nessel's position, she came out and said, I'm not going to defend this law. That's literally her job, whether she likes the law or not. As an attorney, how many times, and I don't know, with your, you said with your extensive career as, as uh, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, what is it? Pro bono. Uh, oh, what did public you, defender. Public defender. Thank you. I was oh. just, the, the words were escaping me for some reason. Public defender. As a public defender, right? You're there to ensure, just so it was our talk, that the prosecutor and the police officer are doing their job. You could defend somebody that you is repugnant. You don't like them. You don't like what they did. And you frankly wouldn't defend those actions 
but you're there to ensure that the prosecutor did their job properly. The police officer did their job properly. They didn't skirt the law. They didn't go around the law. They did everything by the book. So that defendant's rights were not violated. Maybe they were found guilty. Maybe they weren't. You had a reasonable cause. You have a duty to zealously advocate for your client, whether you agree with what they did or with them or not. If she is the attorney for the state, she, again, she's saying she doesn't want to do that job because she disagrees with that law. That's not your role. Your role is to defend that law or put somebody else in your office if you can't do it morally, ethically, whatever, to do it. But the attorney general is the attorney. And it's up to the client, the state, right? Whether it's the legislative branch, just the, the people in general to defend those laws and and do your job. So I think I have a real problem with her saying she's not going to defend that law. So what's more than that is it's her office. So there's three, uh, three attorneys offices essentially that are listed um with multiple attorneys listed at each address but mm -hmm. there's uh a so-called special prosecutor listed from uh new york new york uh there's a so-called special prosecutor that whitmer listed uh in filing this case as um uh, from washington dc Mm -hmm. And then she also listed the uh, attorney general's office with a few different individuals in uh, various roles within the attorney general's office. So it is the attorney general's office that is bringing this case. So uh, regardless of what the, the law says, I mean, let's say, I mean, the law could say um, that, um, you know, a doctor would be put in prison if they denied a woman uh, a right to an abortion. You know, that could be a law. Uh, what I guess my thoughts on it are the Constitution is pretty clear that we have the right to life and there's no due process being afforded to the unborn children nor to the fathers of these unborn children. Um, so they're not given uh, a lawyer guardian ad litem, which I've also served in that role for many years. That's a great um, point. That's a great point that a lot of people don't bring up. So how is it that, you know, as far as policy goes, whether, you know, somebody agrees with it or not, um, you know, the facts are the facts. You know, we don't have to agree with facts. I mean, people say there's a separation of church and state. And so you can't talk about God and government. God is uh, the foundation of our government. It's uh, for the it's protection. Actually, it's freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. My well, even more. Yeah, Even more than that, our state constitution, yeah. the preamble, we're no, grateful to almighty God for the blessings of freedom and earnestly desiring to secure and, those blessings undiminished to ourselves and our posterity. So we create state government. Absolutely. I mean, it's my, their sole purpose. Yeah. My, my aunt, my great aunt is actually a nun and she went back to school. She worked, uh, she's an attorney, worked for Lakeshore Legal Aid for years and one of the, my role models. And we've had many discussions on that going through law school and afterwards about the the role of religion and government and the separation of church and state. And what, what does that mean? And again, and that's where that, that concept, and it was always saying it's freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. And that's the problem with our society right now is that taking God out of everything and using the media, using this, the propaganda and indoctrination in our schools 
and having these policies put in place that don't have um, respect for the nuclear household and the underpinnings of, you know, what really America was founded upon. So what would you do then if you win this race? Uh, her case, it's going to be still going because it's it's in the circuit court now. Whoever loses is going to the Court of Appeals. Whoever loses is going to the Michigan Supreme Court. Obviously, well, somebody is going to file a request to bypass the Court of Appeals and try to jump to the Michigan Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court's going to say, no, we don't think that's appropriate. It's going to be a whole big thing, like we've seen for the last two years, nothing but that. So it will be going on by the time uh, the new attorney general takes office. If that person is you, what would you do with this case? Well, I think it, uh, well, one is I'd be defending this case. I'll be vigorously defending it and uh, not just based off of my my personal opinions, but that's what the job of attorney general is, is to defend the laws, um, especially- What do you mean? It's the attorney general's office that's the plaintiff in the case. They're representing- no, the, 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 the attorney general is is the defendant in, in one of those cases. That's why she was named as the top law enforcement officer. And that's oh, why no, no. In this case, she's it's her office that's listed as the attorney for Whitmer. And there's 13 okay, prosecuting so then, attorneys. Then that's the other one, the Planned Parenthood, or the, the other, there's two cases going on. One okay, I only know about the one. Okay, so there's two cases, and one of them is the attorney general is the defendant because okay. he's the top prosecutor and the attorney for the state. Okay. And I didn't see, so, and again, I haven't read the briefs on, on Whitmer's side, but that's the, the side I am is on the, the current law. What, what it all depends, and I think it's premature to navigate this field. And that's one of the arguments. Um, I think somebody was, was saying that they were going to file with the, this, this case of, I, of what, again, I haven't read the briefs of what I heard saying because of, it was pointed to what's going to happen, um, you know, at the federal level, I think it's, you know, moot, whatever, not yet, not yet ripe, I guess I should say, but, um, I would have to see how the Supreme Court rules to have to analyze of how the case progresses forward. But here in Michigan, no, I don't see that that law is against uh, unconstitutional in Michigan. Okay, so I guess let me put it this way. As as an amicus, I plan to uh, submit a, a, a brief or whatever it might need to be, depending on the stage in at the time that I file this argument, but um, that not only to deny the governor's requests, but to, on the flip side, outright declare uh, yes. that the words of the Constitution stand, regardless of whether somebody likes them or not, and that we each have a right to life that mm. includes those unborn children. And so um, all abortion in the state of Michigan, uh, even if we're just looking at the Michigan state constitution, all abortions are unconstitutional and uh, don't provide the um, um, due process necessary for fathers, for the unborn children. Uh, so it's not just a matter of enforcing the criminal abortion statute, because there's a lot of things cut out of that, but rather a more aggressive and straightforward approach to say, okay, but we need to halt the abortions that are taking place in these 13 counties completely. Uh, what um, what so would be your position it, yeah, on I mean, Again, depending on, 
you know, the, the makeup, unfortunately, where they're, we're getting backlash in the legislature of going to the Supreme Court. What I want to bring up a, a great point is that we are now our Supreme Court in Michigan after the last elections is now in Democrat control. Yep. No matter how much you say that it's nonpartisan, that's a lot of the leanings. And, and that, this is a whole longer conversation. But that's why it's imperative if believing on, on this side of the aisle that we have elections coming up in November for Supreme Court justice. We have Brian Zara, the most conservative member of the bench, who's up for reelection. We have these nominating conventions this week, and it, it seems we have Paul Hudson, who's uh, an attorney, uh, an appellate attorney on the West Side. And he's going to be the other Republican nominee. Now, on the Democrat side, it's Richard Bernstein, who I'm sure everybody is familiar with, and an individual they just nominated last week, Representative Kyra Bolden. And I want to tell you a couple stories of Kyra Bolden. This is how important these elections are because it affects you. You have a legal analysis like we're talking about. We have an illegal analysis. You have what the law, the Constitution says, what the law says. Maybe it's not up to my opinion. Maybe it's not up to Catherine's opinion. It's ultimately up to a judge's opinion. And if that judge gets it wrong, you appeal that judge. Ultimately, and when you're talking about Michigan law, the buck stops at the Michigan Supreme Court. What is the Michigan Supreme Court? What are they made up of? Politics always has as a play partisanship. So we have elections this year where this case is not going to be decided before the elections this year. Like we said, it's going to be ongoing and after these elections. So we need to make sure with this momentum on our side, everybody is fully informed because one of those things in, in that Catherine brought up in the beginning is has a duty to, and, it, and it's not just people go to your attorney friends. Hey, who should I vote for for judge? I don't know who these attorneys are, prosecutor. Most of you guys, anybody who's an attorney is a resource for that. Not only are you a resource, but as Catherine said, you have a duty under the professional rules or an obligation to vet these people and, and give your uh, your opinion. It's not just the top of the ticket, whether however long the, the thing is, flip it to the back, go to these nonpartisan, look into these people, because these are the people sitting on the bench that are deciding your rights, that are deciding what the Constitution says. And we don't want more activist, super liberal, far left Democrats sitting on the bench that will oppose or rule against your beliefs and what your vision, what the law, the Constitution in America is all about. Rep Bolden, who's going to be on the ballot, she sits on the Judiciary Committee with me. She's from Southfield. She's the representative where when we are talking about election and voter ID, and it was against it. And I said, and I went up to her afterwards. And after this conversation, I'm like, uh, Rep. Holden, it's like, I'm not trying to trying to pick a fight or anything. I just want to know, how can you be against showing an ID? I, I just don't understand in my mind. It's it just, for me, it's so common sense. And, you know, 70 something percent of people polled out there. And she said to me, well, not everybody can afford an ID. Okay. Okay. All right. I looked it up, $10 to get a state ID. If you can't afford a state ID, then you can show that you're on government assistance, some type of your homeless, whatever documentation, you can get a free ID. So I did a bill to just 
make the IDs free. I looked up how much money we take in as Secretary of State. It was like maybe 700 and something thousand dollars, million, whatever it was. It was negligible when you're talking about a $74 billion budget. I said, there's nothing I can think of more essential for the government to do than to provide an ID to show someone is who they say they are. Just like my major legislation, I'm one of the most bipartisan representatives in the legislature. I get Republicans and Democrats co-sponsoring all my major legislation without compromising principles. I'm still the sixth rated most conservative member of the Michigan legislature, both the House and the Senate. I'm able to do that by focusing on issues that matter most to everybody. Again, free IDs. I got Rep. Jim Ellison, Democrat from Royal Oak area. Before I submitted the bill, I said, hey, hey, Jim, how, how do you feel about this? Free IDs. He said, oh, I love it. Great. He co-signed it. Got my bipartisanship, especially when you're in divided government and working across the aisle, submitted the bill. And it was ended up being brought up a few weeks later with the, hey, show your ID to get your absentee ballot and to vote. All of a sudden, Rep. Ellison didn't like it anymore. Every single Democrat voted against it including my co-sponsor. It went to the governor's desk. She vetoed it. Now it's part of that's the, the whole thing of secure my vote petition process, which like just like we went through with the governor's uh, emergency powers act, uh, unlock Michigan to get around the governor's veto to secure our elections. Kyra Bolden's the same one. So she was against that, voted against it. In judiciary, we had a bill by, by Senator Runstead, I believe, to make it a felony if you fill out an absentee voter application for somebody else or use somebody else's name, an identity theft type thing, and voter fraud. And she said, and, and said we shouldn't be uh, over-criminalizing this and making it harsher penalties because it's not an issue now, so there's no reason to do it. And the chair, Graham Filler, kind of was cutting off debate, wouldn't let me speak. And I'm just going to point out her blatant hypocrisy when her own clerk, the Southfield clerk, was under indictment at the time in his criminal charges of messing with the absentee ballots. It's a joke. This individual who voted against that, voted against the IDs, who is not just uh, on this issue, and I've had talk her on the, on the abortion issue, I think it's beyond pro-choice. I almost like pro-abortion. And then got on the House floor and and told a story about how she lost, I think she lost her baby, unfortunately, and what a terrible situation it was. And it's just like hearing that, it's like in going on about the, this miracle of life and that she didn't get to experience it, something like that. And it's like, she's the same one that's railing for abortion rights, rights for women. But this is Kyra Bolden, who's now going to be on your ballot, anybody in Michigan, going for Michigan Supreme Court. And I think you make an important point there that, you know, number one, we need to be watching out who we're uh, voting or not voting for on the ballot. And that includes all offices, especially the state Supreme Court, quite frankly, every judgeship that's on the ballot. But, um, you know, when the results come out, if you end up with um, a state Supreme Court that is, um, you know, very heavily liberally stacked and uh, people that don't know how to read the Constitution, 
uh, and are bent on interpreting it according to their own personal philosophies, then you know there is a danger to bringing an issue in front of them, not because you have to follow unconstitutional laws, but because as we've seen time and time again, uh, the public and mass will generally follow those uh, unconstitutional laws or orders or case precedent because uh, they think they have to or because they think they're just protected now. Government's going to, you know, keep me safe because they agree with my position. So uh, there is a danger to that. I guess my concern is that, um, and again, I didn't know about the other case where it's uh, the, the AG's office on the, um, on the defense there. But when it comes to this case, uh, it's going to be decided one way or the other. So Whitmer is taking the position that, you know, these are unconstitutional because a woman has the right to abort a child in utero. So to me, I don't know, I just for food for thought to, to uh, give you something to think about in the time between now and, and possibly, you know, swearing in as the new uh, attorney general of the state of Michigan, uh, there is no other way to combat that the whole argument other than to say but an unborn child does have the right to life liberty and property uh that cannot be deprived without due process of law and um abortions outside of an extreme medical situation uh for the mother etc cetera, etc cetera, whatever criterion would need to be there um Basically, if there's no medically necessary reason for an abortion, that they can't happen. Um, that that's really the only. I mean, the stance has to be taken. Otherwise, um, you, you do have that that worry that you know the court is going to end up making a bad decision. But we still, even if we know there's a bad judge involved, we still have to bring forth. The well, best no, absolutely. And that's was my point earlier is even if you're going to lose a fight, you have to fight and you have to fight for it and you have to fight for your principles. And, right. you know, in, in this case in particular, that's the whole thing of it. There's no under the current framework of Roe v. Wade that that law has not been enforceable. OK, and that's why this lawsuit of Whitmer's, I think, will get thrown out ultimately before that before the new case is decided because it's not ripe yet it's it's you have to have an actual case or controversy getting into court and she's seeking a declaratory opinion of such and i think without that supreme court ruling actually the michigan court of appeals uh has ruled on this the supreme mm -hmm. court declined to rule on this but uh the the standing law so to speak Mm -hmm. uh, is from the Michigan Court of Appeals saying there is no right to an abortion under the Michigan Constitution. And uh, they did some weird nuancing or carving out of the mm -hmm. criminal abortion statute to say that it is still constitutional, even under the Roe v. Wade analysis. Uh, right. So that's what her argument is, is that, you know, it's um, they're not following what that supposed standard is supposed to be. Um, yeah, so anyway, so in, in, in that case, if there's that case law out there, if the Court of Appeals already ruled that, again, it's still not right because the federal courts, the federal Supreme Court hasn't ruled to change that. So then that's a, that Court of Appeals opinion would come into play. Well, and that's the Correct. thing. The argument says it's it's nothing to do with the U.S. Constitution, mm -hmm. regardless of what they do at the U.S. level. Mm -hmm. She's claiming there is a right to an abortion 
in the Michigan Constitution. So she's just, so, uh, she, again, so she's just basically trying to relitigate re this uh, previous Court of Appeals opinion. Like right. I, said, I, haven't, I haven't read the briefs. It was my understanding yeah. based off of some of the reports. I haven't had time to look at the briefs, but. Yeah, she's asking the court to, um, well, she's acting as though they're in the role of the Michigan Supreme Court, but essentially saying the Court of Appeals got it wrong and the Michigan Supreme Court didn't take this issue up. So now there's this unrest and confusion. Uh, you have this decision out there by the Court of Appeals. You have the statute that's at least to some degree still in effect. And uh, we can't have that. Um, that uncertainty. In fact, what I find interesting is that in her arguments, she even brings up things like, you know, we uh, we have these unenumerated rights guaranteed to us in Article One, Section 23 of the state constitution and uh, the Ninth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And so it's not enumerated that a woman has a right to an abortion, but she does nonetheless under this unenumerated rights uh, clause of the constitution. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, woman, that you literally, I'm going to copy and paste your arguments from this brief and I'm going to put them in my amicus brief on the Iron Pig case because yeah. that is exactly why you don't get to make EOs uh, that take away our rights. Uh, I, 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 love, I, I love when that happens, when they take those stances and you literally can be like, oh my God, this fits right over here. Talk about, you know, oh, yeah. you know how that happens all the time. You know, there, there is something I want to bring up, too, when you're talking about equal protection, when you're talking about Constitution, when you're talking about dealing with federalism in other states, something that nobody else has, has really talked about. And it's this. We just have this independent, and that's that whole other thing, independent redistricting commission. And I can go on and on about that. But it's based off of the census. We have reapportionment. So we used to have, a decade ago, 16 congressional districts, 16 uh, congressmen that represented Michigan based off of population that went to uh, Washington, D.C. to represent our interests. Because of declining population and population elsewhere, and unfortunately, when we have great people move down to Florida, we uh, lose, lose some people. But um, we are now going down from 14. We're losing another Congress congressional district. We're down to 13. Talk about our southern border crisis, talking about other states and the Biden administration letting people just come in. And where are those people going? And all of them for years and years flowing into California. And they have the most amount of say and the most electoral votes based off of these congressional districts, based off of population. Anybody in Michigan and these Michigan Democrats, I'm in the 11th district, which is Rep. Haley Stevens, because of the new district still in the 11th. We have two congressional candidates, Haley Stevens and Andy Levin, now fighting each other in a primary to see who's going to represent. I want uh, nobody's asked their opinion, but as a, the attorney general, I am going to file lawsuits because against California, against the Biden administration, against these other states with these immigration policies based off of our collective. Uh, unequal enforcement of their laws, our due process, where they are diluting our vote, our power of our citizens here in Michigan. So we are losing representation at that federal level because of these other states, because of their policies and Biden's administration, allowing these uh, illegals to come in and get counted where they are now detrimentally impacting every single one of us, Republicans and Democrats alike. 
Well, and yeah, I think that's an important issue. Unfortunately, um, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear or declined to take on the cases that were um, where that very argument was being made. But I think perhaps it's just, you know, the type of argument being made uh, wasn't the best. And, uh, you know, there's always the opportunity to try and bring that issue again in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um the uh, the unfortunate thing is, regardless for all of us, uh, you know, I we we have this oath of office. We have a constitutional oath, and I really wanted to ask you about some things related to that. But uh, quite frankly, I have a starving child who um, is going to be laying on the couch like she hasn't oh, eaten in three months. But um, anyway, because uh, I told her one o'clock, but. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's important that in, in all the topics we talked about, and we talked about the three branches of government, we talked about uh, state, federal, county, um, you know, local uh, um, uh, officials, you know, there's been officials that are appointed and elected. We need to make sure that we're as people, let alone as, you know, an attorney general or um, any other person, that we're aware that all officers have to take a constitutional oath. It's required under Article 6 of our U.S. Constitution and Article 11, Section 1 of our state constitution, MCL 15.151, uh, Michigan state laws. Uh, there's, um, oh goodness, I can't remember. There's like five USC Section 3335, I think is what it is. But anyway, there's um, federal statutes, state statutes, um, there's uh, U.S. and Michigan constitutions. We have to take an oath of office, uh, no matter what branch, no matter what level of government. If you're in government, even if you don't get paid, if you're a volunteer that just, you know, you're there volunteering to sweep the floors in um, your local library, you have to take an oath of office in order to have an official role at that government uh, building or with that position. You have to take that oath to support uh, and defend the U.S. and, in this case, state constitutions. Not only that, um, that we have to realize there are state laws in Michigan and, and quite frankly, in every other state, but in, in Michigan specifically, there are state laws on the books that talk about the oath of office. And there's been a lot of discussion about you know, well, if somebody doesn't take their oath, what happens and are there repercussions? And Stand Up Michigan was uh, backing this whole Valentine's Day, whatever, dossier they wanted people to bring to prosecuting attorneys and tell them to do this and that. And they were really off the mark. The intent behind it was good, but they missed something that would have teeth. And that is um, that uh, if you look at chapter 201 uh, of our MCLs, uh, MCL 201.3, MCL 201.31, and 201.35. If you have uh, any person who is um, in an office, that office, this, this is the wording of the state uh, statute, every office shall become, ha shall become vacant on and it lists a few different things that happen that would create a vacancy automatically. Number seven, his refusal, the, the office holders, refusal or neglect to take his oath of office 
or to give or renew the official bond. And that was mm -hmm. the standard Michigan focus was on the bonds. But anyway, uh, a, there is another section about the bonds somewhere that says uh, if somebody fails to do a bond, then there is no consequence. I don't know if that supersedes that. I think it does. And there was like a $150 fine. Because I looked that up at the time when people were trying to say in revoking bonds and bonds of office. Bonds. I would be curious because I yeah, I researched this thoroughly two years ago and they can't get out of it. Um, yeah, th there was something recently and I, I saw it and I, I can try to send it to you. And it was bonds of office holders and maybe for a specific, not everybody of or that. And it was, I know, especially for the secretary of state, lieutenant governor or something else. If, they're, if they don't do the bond, it doesn't affect them taking office. Well, as far as my, my, but I don't uh, know where your question was going. Yeah. It's, it's always been not, I haven't been emphasizing so much on the bonds, but uh, it's just found in the same statute. My emphasis has been on the oath of office. And if mm -hmm. someone has not taken that oath of office, either because they refused to do so, they refuse to say, I solemnly mm -hmm. swear that I will support and defend the U S constitution and the state uh, constitution of the state of Michigan. If they're refusing or they just forget, they neglect, they whatever, they're just, they just haven't done it. It doesn't say there has to be a whole court case. It literally says the office is vacant because they, the, the constitutional oath is required before anyone can take that office. Mm -hmm. So uh, those other statutes I mentioned, 0.31, that says that every uh, statewide office, elected or appointed, um, except for state or federal legislators or judges, but everything else, the governor fills that vacancy. But um, and this is where you come in. Mm -hmm. If it is a county office elected or appointed mm -hmm. and there is one of those vacancies, then there is this um, procedure. If it's if it's a judgeship, if it's you know a prosecuting attorney, whatever, it has to mm -hmm. have those specific things. But every other office that's not one of those specific ones, whether somebody's appointed or elected, if there's a vacancy because they didn't take their oath of office before they took office, uh, the it's the probate judge, the county clerk, and the prosecuting attorney that has to appoint a mm -hmm. suitable person to fill the vacancy for the remainder of that term. So. This is something that uh, whoever takes the new AG position, they need to be up on what our state law already says and already requires. And uh, because there are 82, um, uh, there's there's violations of this in different uh, respects, usually within the health department, uh, for 82 out of the 83 Michigan counties currently, Mm -hmm. And uh, there are, have been people that were trying to have the county prosecutors um, do what the, the rest of the laws in between say that the prosecutors are supposed to do. And the prosecutors haven't done anything while the attorney general in that respect is the overseer of mm -hmm. the county prosecutors. And whoever wins that position needs to put all of them on notice. It is their duty like you mentioned earlier with the criminal abortion statute, it is their duty to enforce, defend whatever uh, law that's applicable. And in this case, there were formal requests made to pursue that. Once they know that's a thing, they can't just ignore it. They can't say, oh, the, the oath of office isn't that important to me. It's no big deal. I've got other cases I want to work on. It's not an option. So mm -hmm. anyway, just something to, to throw at you. 
Um, I wanted to have more back and forth discussion on it, but uh, you know, it's such a huge topic. Uh, it could take, you know, we could take two hours. Next, just ne next time, next time. Right, right. So um, anyway, so if you want to tell people, because I know that there were some questions, um, the, uh, oh, somebody was asking who they were. Um, the, the three individuals that have to together fill a vacancy of a county position, and I've seen this happen in Ionia County before. Uh, we had, um, well, anyway, I won't go there. But anyway, um, so the probate judge, and the county clerk and the prosecuting attorney, those three sit as essentially a committee and they have to decide together on a, who they're going to appoint to fill a vacancy for any county office at all, if there's a vacancy. So um, anyway, that answers that and, question. Yeah, and it, it depends on the county actually and the, the office if it has an executive and with a prosecutor like Governor Whitmer was appointed prosecutor in Ingham County and the judges of that circuit are the ones that appoint the prosecutor, but everything else is the, uh, it's like that, the, the, uh, prosecutor clerk and probate chief probate, probate judge. Yeah. They're the ones on that little committee, but as far as if there's a vacancy in the prosecuting attorney's office or whatever, that's, that's one of those statutes that I didn't go over cause it's one of those specific ones. But, um, um, Shoot, I just had, um, there were some questions here. I wanted to tie all this together. Oh, no, it's escaping. Uh, um, shoot. Oh, so the convention, uh, is it, does it officially start on Friday night or is it Saturday morning? So, yeah, it's Saturday. Is the typically, I think they, they're allowing district caucuses. There, I don't think there's any business with any district caucuses. They usually meet Friday night. So the convention uh, starts at uh, 10 a.m. Saturday, the 22nd. I think registration check-in is also Friday night, Saturday morning before the official. It starts at 10 a.m. Uh, I'm having an event Friday night, uh, so you can meet me, come ask questions at Atwater Brewery. Uh, that will be from 7 to 10 p.m. Friday night. And is it in Grand Rapids this year? Yes, in Grand Rapids. Okay, so your event, is it also in downtown Grand Rapids? Yep, right across from just north of the DeVos Center. That's where the convention is taking place. And, you know, I told my husband for all the years that we were um, either delegates or alternates to the state convention. And, you know, I was a candidate for state rep years ago. And um, and then most recently when I left, I was, uh, well, a township trustee. I was a state committee woman for the Michigan Republican Party and uh, second congressional district committee woman, all that. And then um, this year, they're having the convention in Grand Rapids, which was fairly close to where we were. Uh, I just said the irony is... Uh, you know, it doesn't escape me. So I know that they've had it in, in Grand Rapids before, but it just seems like so many other times we were either going to Lansing or we were going to Mackinac. <laughs> and yeah. it was like never in Grand Rapids. So uh, how interesting. But uh, so anyway, those of you who are wondering about that, um, the, the key votes happening, the key uh, roles or positions being voted on, that's uh, the Secretary of State uh, Republican nominee, the um, AG, Republican nominee, and Secretary of State, is it just, are there three? There's three. There, yeah, three three candidates, uh, Christina Caramo, Cindy Berry, and uh, State Representative Bo Lefebvre. And uh, Christina Caramo is the, um, 
best by far candidate. Um, I've had some dealings with the others in, in various capacities, uh, generally limited, but uh, in any event, I could tell you without any doubt that she is the best person for the job. And funny enough, uh, Trump agreed with me. So that's interesting. Um, and uh, in the AG's office, like we mentioned uh, a few times now, there are three candidates, Tom Leonard, who used to be the um, the um, Speaker of the House. Speaker of the House. Thank you very ran much. Last, when I was running nice. for state rep. He, he ran last time and uh, was our nominee, lost to Dana Nessel. Yes, he was the Republican nominee for Michigan Attorney General. Um, and I voted for him. And I was, uh, you know, trying to get people to support him. I was out there, you know, supporting his campaign. Me too. Um, and uh, Matt DiPerno, who um, I've supported in, in different respects with uh, his election integrity lawsuits and things that he was doing. Um, he's also running. They're very good guys. Uh, but if any of you are wondering at all, uh, my um, conclusion is that although any of the three of these guys would be a far better choice than Nestle and whoever wins this Republican nomination, I will support to beat Nestle. No, no qualms about it. But in getting us to that point, I would strongly recommend, uh, pursuant to my ethical obligations as an attorney talking to the public and informing the public, I would strongly recommend that you guys uh, support and try to help Ryan get into that uh, position as Republican nominee for Michigan Attorney General. Uh, I mean, it's it's obvious as with anyone that you're never going to completely agree on things. My husband will tell you that even he and I definitely never completely agree on things. However, we agree on the important things and at least most of the important things. And so... Um, Although the other two would be good in a variety of respects, um, I do think that um, uh, Ryan is going to be, uh, I feel like there should have been a Ryan that was running for Secretary of State, but anyway, just because there's an AG and a governor candidate, and anyway, uh, but uh, we'll change Christina's name to Ryan, but um, Ryan would do the best job there. So with that being said, um, this week, every Wednesday, I have a Wednesday way to get involved challenge and I'll go through that. Sorry, guys, I have the electricians back here <laughs> working. If you guys can hear that in the background, but if, um, uh, normally I, I have something of my own, but I'm going to do it a little different since we have a guest speaker with us today, Ryan, what would you say would be if someone wants to impact what's happening in Michigan and what's going to happen at the Michigan Republican uh, State Convention this very weekend. Um, hopefully they would choose to support you, uh, but if you uh, choose to support one of the other candidates uh, instead, I would ask you to just apply that to your chosen candidate. But Ryan, what would be the one thing if you could have someone help you? What is a way to get involved challenge we could give them that would help give you that nomination way to get involved challenge tell your friends who are state delegates that's what it is it's all about the voting delegates uh for this weekend to vote for me to become the republican nominee who's the republicans best chance to actually defeat in Nessel. so whether that's uh you know calling them up looking up everybody here whoever's watching in michigan has 
precinct delegates, unless it's unfilled position, there's somebody in your county, call up those delegates, look them up, just like if you're calling a representative, telling them to vote a certain way or how you want them to, to be on a position. That's These delegates are elected positions. They're the elected representatives for their precinct who are now being elevated, going to the state convention. Contact your precinct delegate. Hopefully you are a precinct delegate, a state delegate. Vote for me, get involved, call them, put it on social media, Facebook, contact my campaign, contact me. You can call, text, email, anytime, Facebook, elect Ryan Berman, electryanberman.com, handle at electryanberman. Spread the word that, you know, do your homework, right? I think no matter what, if you look at every candidate and this is the, the you know, thing that everybody has to do over any election, any position, whether it's county commission, state rep, you have to look and do your own vetting of those candidates and decide, you know, who is going to represent your values the best. Just like Catherine said, and I said it last night, it's one of those things. It's anybody who's in a relationship is married. You're not going to agree with somebody 100% of the time, even if you love them more than anything. But us as Republicans, we should be agreeing on stuff the bulk, the vast majority of the time. And I'm always willing to have that conversations. And, and just like I said, with, with the Democratic colleagues of trying to understand where they're coming from to come to that consensus. Yeah, you can't do anything in life without compromise, but you don't compromise on certain things, your constitutional rights, your, your those core principles. But talk to, to people, get, get involved and look at those candidates who's going to represent your values and also has the best chance to actually get that position to beat a sitting incumbent attorney general. You don't have to, and we've had to, and I've been a precinct delegate for over a decade and very involved. A lot of times it's, oh, you have to try to compromise that conservative values with electability. Guess what? I'm the most conservative guy in the race and the most electable. There's no compromise with me as a candidate. I may not be your, your first choice before look into me. I think everybody's going to be happy with me. And I'm the one really to unite the party, unite the factions, unite the grassroots, the, the establishment coming together. And I will, as the Republican nominee, I will beat Dana Nessel in November. And just to reiterate or to clarify to those of you who um, you're going to hear it again tomorrow on Wednesday's Way to Get Involved Challenge. But when he was asking you to get in contact with the delegates, uh, let's be clear that not all Republican uh, precinct delegates go to state convention. Uh, they're all invited to county convention and at county convention is where they are elevated to uh, either state convention delegate or a state convention alternate. Uh, but in any event, you can get access to who those people are if you wanted to make calls. Um, but it is hard. The party makes it hard to find out who even when I was elected to state party, it was like an impossible thing to figure out who else was um, you know, elected, uh, you know, to, to be able to vote at state convention, et cetera. So at any, at any rate, um, if you I, contact me, I, I'll tell you who's in your County and give right. you a list of. Yep. Those, so those that's why I wanted to make clear for people yeah. is that if you contact Ryan, if you want to support Ryan and, uh, you think that he would be the, the best man for the job for a Michigan attorney general, then contact his campaign 
and they will give you, if you say, hey, I'm willing to make some phone calls or I'm willing to knock some doors or I'm willing to contact people before state convention, first of all, do it right away, which is why I'm not waiting until tomorrow to release the Wednesday's Way to Get Involved Challenge, but also um, make sure that you're going to follow through because if they're doing it the right way, they might give you a certain list and say, okay, you know, this is a chunk. Maybe we've already given another chunk to somebody else who's already in your, your precinct or in your county or whatever. So, um, so do try to follow through on that. Now, last week, just so you know, Ryan, last week, my challenge was actually to have people either agree to door knock or phone call those people who would be voting on these um, positions uh, and do so until they were able to successfully share their position on that person or that candidate with at least 100 people who actually get to vote. Now, obviously you're not going to have uh, most likely that time to reach that many people between now and Saturday, but um, I'm going to challenge you to do something in, you know, 10 or 20 or 25, something we're going to, we're going to make it specific before tomorrow. But uh, I just wanted to at least give Ryan the opportunity as the current candidate to share something that he feels would be the best help to get him in that position. So basically sharing the information as much as you possibly can. Go to his Facebook page, share that. Um, I think all the candidates have ads out there on Facebook. Find one of those ads, share the ad, uh, share his website, text it to your friends and family. Uh, you know, e even if they're not, somebody who's voting or you're not sure if they're voting at state convention, you don't know that they might, you know, share it on to somebody else who is, or just seeing it shared or if you're tagging somebody on Facebook, for example, um, who, you know, you know, is just a friend of yours and not necessarily going to convention that could itself bring up the algorithms to get it then in front of more people who are in fact uh, people who are going to vote at state convention this weekend. So uh, every little bit does help. Don't feel like you're just one in a sea of many and your voice and, and your efforts won't matter. Every little bit does help. Um, man, it has been nearly two hours. So we are going to let you all go. We appreciate uh, all of you being on uh, Facebook uh, and YouTube and uh, Rumble joining us live today. Those of you who will check this out later on on our other social media platforms. Um, if you do have any follow-up questions that you have for Ryan that we were not able to cover today, uh, please make sure to reach out again. Your contact information, Ryan, is Ryan at electryanberman.com. If you go to electryanberman.com, my phone number, email, or just hit me up Facebook, type in Ryan Berman. I'm very accessible. So whatever means, remember, elect Ryan Berman, you'll, you'll find me. Uh, for those of you who might try to reach me, don't try to reach me through Facebook. My messenger broke, no joke, in May of 2020 because I had, I guess, way too many people trying to message me. <laughs> so I haven't been able to see a single message come through in the last two years on Facebook. But um, please do get involved. And if you're still undecided, do your homework. I mean, take the time, look at the three candidates, or uh, as much as I really wouldn't want you to do this, if you trust me and you trust my judgment, uh, then hear my words that I, I think that Ryan Berman is the best guy for the job for Michigan AG this go round, even though um, the other two would be much better than keeping Dana Nussel. And uh, while we're at it, uh, go and support the other Ryan. Ryan Kelly for governor. Um, he's a friend of mine. And at first when he was running, 
I wasn't too sure uh, if he would end up being the best candidate, primarily because I didn't know who else would be running. But hands down, he would be the best candidate for governor. I, I also don't agree with everything that he does either. But, you know, like I said, I'm still married to my husband and we disagree on a daily basis. <laughs> so uh, please vote for the Ryans. Uh, please uh, support Christina for secretary of state and uh, keep fighting for freedom in whatever way, capacity and uh, geographic location that you can. Uh, thank you to you, Ryan, for taking your time. Uh, this went much longer than... I wanted to, but man, we were able to cover a lot. You're able to share your thoughts on a lot of things and we'll get this in front of tons of people no, I, right away today. So yeah, no, I appreciate it and appreciate your support and uh, always enjoy our talks. And I remember talking to you for hours and hours going, going over things. And it always seems it goes by really quick. Uh, just a funny thing to leave you guys on. Um, I had many hours of conversations with Ryan uh, over the phone uh, in the first week, well, all throughout April of 2020, uh, trying to get the legislature to not extend uh, Whitmer's executive orders again. And, uh, and it was just a handful, a very small handful of people that were willing as Republicans to say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't uh, extend these executive orders again. Uh, at any rate, so I knew him quite well over the phone, never had seen him in person and never bothered to look up his you know, official picture on the state legislature website or anything. There we are on April 30th, 2020, and I'm in the, the hallway in front of the Michigan uh, House of Representative chamber, and Lee Chatfield was unconstitutionally shutting the doors of the state legislature, um, Article 4, Section 20 of the state constitution says the doors must be open unless the public safety requires otherwise, but he wasn't trying to protect the public. Anyway, long story short, um, there was a lot of animosity and people all over the nation saw, you know, a lot of these angry militia looking dudes uh, screaming and yelling and hollering at uh, the Redcoats, the Capitol Security and state police that were there that day. And I was right in the middle of it all. Um, didn't realize my husband wasn't right behind me until it was like all over. And I'm like, what the heck? Where did my husband go? But anyway, he apparently thought I could handle myself even without a gun that day. But um, I, uh, I happened to notice there was this guy who looked like he was Secret Service. No joke. And, uh, you know, the little United States pin and all this other stuff. And and I'm like, dang, what is the Secret Service doing here? And um, anyway, I don't remember how it came out to be, but uh, apparently... Um, at some point in there, Ryan decided he'd walk forward and hand me his card. And it was that point I looked down and I realized, oh, that dude's not Secret Service. That is State Rep Ryan Berman, who I've been talking to this whole time. <laughs> so um, it was just, uh, it was kind yeah, of funny. You know what? I was the only representative to come out and I came out of the chambers to talk to everybody and, and who was, uh, they were rightfully upset, rightfully out there doing their, their constitutional right to protest and came out to to try to alleviate some of the concerns tell them it's all about communication what exactly was going on and that normally because they were shouting let us in let us in you know on any normal day only representatives are allowed on the house floor and up until recently you can have guests on the house floor and they suspended that like i said until recently but i you know going out i'm like hey on a normal day you wouldn't be allowed on the house floor 
I'm your, I was elected as a representative to be your voice in there. I'm listening to your voice out here and I am going to be your voice in there, which I was. And, you know, one of those things is it started getting pretty contentious with the officers and, uh, you know, where they called in reinforcements and I didn't want to see uh, any, any problems. And yeah, it ended up making national news anyways, but I mean, luckily there was no, nothing violent, no arrests, any type of clashes, but again, being on both sides and I've, I, you know, being an, as a, as an activist, now as an attorney, as a reserve officer, I've been in all these different roles. And I, you know, frankly said to some of these, the more louder individuals in the front, I'm like, Hey guys, you know, take a step back because you go into these officers, it could it could end up bad. I don't want these officers to get hurt. I don't want you to get hurt. And they're like, we're not going to do anything. And I'm like, but look at all the people. And they, like you said, you look behind you, your, your husband's gone. All the people crowding in. I said, this is a domino effect. One person trips or gets shoved and it goes and all of a sudden you're in and then it's fisticuffs and it can be a problem. I don't want anybody arrested today. And they're like, hey, good point. And they took a step back and gave that buffer zone for those uh, sergeant in arms and the state police that were there and really. But and, as a reminder, course, Ryan, what just you so you know, I don't know about what rules might be on about getting on the house floor, but mm -hmm. if there is something like that totally violates article four, section 20 of the state constitution, there's no excuses. I don't care what bullshit they have. They cannot stop the public from being able to access the the sessions of legislature well yeah that's that's separate that's the gallery upstairs and and being able to be involved. right well yeah the but they were stopping there. that's what they yeah, were doing yeah that was, yeah, that was the upstairs and that's what they set up as a separate viewing room or something and it was on but that again it was a contentious uh you know time yeah. and atmosphere got for a minute to calm calm things down um, and then it, more people came in and ramped things up. But at, at that point, I went back in and that's when I got into an argument with our current speaker, Wentworth, who was the, the pro tem at the time, um, saying, I'm not uh, you're going to have a, a real problem on your hands, not just outside, but here in this chamber, if you anybody is going to be voting to extend these powers. Right. So, um, and just to be clear with everybody else, there is another state rep that there were two that came out. One didn't really talk to the public. That was my current, uh, then current state rep, Luke Meerman. He came out and he talked to me and he was able to give me a copy of Senate Bill 858 that they had just voted on. That was afterwards. But the other state rep that came out, um, well, he walked in that way and he came out, but most of the talking he did was on his way out. And that was Matt Maddock. And he... Um, straight up lied to all the people there. And I called him out on it right at that time. I think I'm pretty sure we have it on video. It was going live on a lot of people's different Facebook feeds. That was before I did lives. But uh, at any rate, it's um, he came out saying that we did this and we did that. And uh, it was all a bunch of lies. So anyway, um, I think that was even worse. So you were the only one that came out and actually tried to engage with people without feeding them a bunch of lies about what was happening inside. So um, there were others that came out, okay. but I just wanted to clarify yeah, yeah, no, no um, the difference there because uh, I was I was really disgusted at um, the lies that were shared that day and the way that it was done. If you if you haven't seen the video, Ryan. 
you'll have to ask me and we'll find it for you on my, it's on my YouTube and Facebook somewhere from two years ago. But I mean, Matt comes out there and he's all going like this. Hey guys, be all excited. We just voted to, to um, sue the governor and to turn down her executive orders when the exact thing was the opposite, that that was Senate bill 858 that voted uh, that, that was approving and putting into law in entirety 32 of her executive orders at the time. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So anyway, um, he, uh, I, I had some issues with him from that point. So, uh, but anyway, for those of you, um, who hung out here with us all this, uh, while that was just a little bit of, uh, interesting stuff, uh, little tidbits and stories to tell you that, uh, this is someone that I have seen in the fight, um, you know, since April of 2020. And I didn't know Ryan before that, just because we're attorneys doesn't mean I knew him. I never had heard about him at all. And I think it was through state rep Steve Johnson, who was also one of them that was trying to fight for freedom at the time. And, um, you know, just started communicating and talking. And so I didn't have any kind of special status. It was, he was talking to me as someone who wasn't even in his own district, but rather a greater Michigan constituent. And um, so I would encourage you, if you do have questions that are important, uh, that you felt, you know, didn't get addressed or we ran out of time to handle, go ahead and reach out to him, him and his campaign uh, and check it out. Uh, look at his uh, his website, uh, discussion on issues. There might be some answers already out there, but uh, pl please do. Um, uh, oh, my husband is telling me that the video I was just mentioning of Matic is on my YouTube page. Um, and so, uh, yeah, maybe he'll probably, if Lori or him, then one of them will end up posting it. I'm sure the link directly to to that video. But anyway, so um, again, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, everyone right. else. Uh, appreciate uh, what you all are doing. Um, and uh, have an absolutely wonderful week. Thanks, everyone.